Good evening. It's good to see you this evening. Hope you've had a great day today, and we're grateful that you're back for worship tonight. Um, we want to, uh, in a moment, fellowship together and just welcome each other. But first of all, let me just announce a couple of things. Uh, we're grateful that our mission teams have returned. You might have seen some of the signs over on the front of the Family Life Center because those teams returned uh, Friday and Saturday from China and from St. Thomas. And uh, where was the other one? Miami. I couldn't, couldn't remember. So we're grateful they're all back, and we look forward later in the summer to hearing mission reports from those groups. Uh, our children's camp, uh, you might have noticed the vans and everything in the parking lot when you drove up tonight. Uh, all the loading of a lot of stuff and prepping for things for their uh, departure in the morning, so we want to be in prayer for them as they go. This week, our women on mission, uh, they postponed their meeting last Tuesday. They will meet this Tuesday uh, over in the patio room at the Family Life Center for their r regular monthly meeting. And then Wednesday evening is the Sunday School Summit that uh, John will be meeting with Sunday School leaders and uh, I think uh, sharing ideas that each of you have for what works in your class and just uh, trying to brainstorm together and ways that we can make our Sunday school better. So uh, I know you'll want to attend that. I believe there's going to be one this uh, Wednesday and then in a couple of weeks there will be another one, I think maybe the last Wednesday of the month. But anyway, just those things that are coming up that you, we want you to know about. If you're a guest with us tonight and this is your first time to visit here at First Baptist and worship with us, we're glad that you're here and we just want you to know that. We ask everybody to take your order of service and uh, there's a flap on that order of service that asks for your registration information. If you don't mind, just fill that out so we have a record of your attendance here today. And then if you are a guest, you could indicate that on there. And also there's a place on the back for prayer needs. We have a prayer ministry that meets while our services are going on and our ushers take those after they're collected during the offering time and, and take those to the prayer ministry. And so if you have a specific prayer need that you want us to pray about, uh, then uh, please indicate it on there and then return that little flap to us during the offering time, and we would appreciate that very much. Well, we want to welcome one another. If you see someone that you don't recognize, they might be a guest tonight, so please speak to them and just welcome those who are sitting around you. Let's stand and greet one another.
How are you this evening? Did you uh, get to watch any of the Andy Griffith Marathon this afternoon on TV Land? What is wrong with you people? On Wimbledon? Um, all right. Uh, Federer won. Mm-hmm. That's good. All right. Uh, some prayer requests that we want to mention this evening as we come to this portion of our service, hospitalized church members. At Tift Regional, we want to remember Joyce Richardson, who uh, fell on Friday and fractured some, some bones and is there for uh, several days to recuperate. No surgery necessary, but there will be a lengthy recuperation for Joyce. Also at Archbold in uh, Thomasville, we want to continue remembering Tyler Revels, who is improving out of uh, the intermediate ICU now and in a regular room. And uh, we'll have a procedure this week, I think. Um, so we want to be praying for that. Betty Kicklider was dismissed from the hospital on Friday and is recuperating now. Uh, let's also remember Children's Camp. As uh, Jim mentioned, we'll be leaving tomorrow morning. About 160, I think, children and chaperones for Camp Lee in Anniston, Alabama. So we want to pray for their safe travel and for a great week for those young people. Congratulations to Lynn and Margaret Kelly on the birth of a granddaughter, Abigail Claire Taba. Yesterday morning at Tift Regional, the parents are uh, Percy and Ashley Taba of Botswana. They've been here for, a, uh, Percy just got here about a week ago. Ashley's been here for several weeks in anticipation of Abigail's arrival and a mother and daughter are doing fine. Christian sympathy to Ron and Sherry Goodwin in the death of his cousin, Bruce Sanders of Cadiz, Kentucky. And then also to David and Sylvia Green in the death of her brother, Kenneth Heath of Willacoochee. So we want to remember Sylvia and the death of her brother. Um, let's pause at this time and pray for these. Father, we do come before you tonight in gratitude for your presence among us, for your love and mercy, and tonight just for the power of prayer that you share with us 
if we will only turn to you and pour out our hearts and minds and souls to you. So tonight we rejoice in, in Betty Kicklider's improvement and the prospect of uh, continuing to recover now, having been discharged from the hospital. We lift up to you also Joyce Richardson and pray that you just speed, speed the healing uh, that she will require to get her back on her feet soon. We also rejoice with Tyler Revels and his family and his uh, slow but, but sure recovery. And we pray for the procedure that he'll undergo this week and continued improvement uh, will be hastened along as a result. We pray for children's camp and for the safe travel and for the children and for the counselors um, and just for your spirit to be with them. So many children, Lord, are at the point of uh, professing their faith in you. And we ask that everything would come together at camp this week and on Thursday night that so many um, children will be saved and a great harvest will occur for the kingdom. We rejoice with the Kellys and the birth of a, a granddaughter and for Abigail's safe arrival and healthy, strong life that began yesterday. Uh, be with that entire family and, and uh, just surround them with um, an added sense of your presence as, as this wonderful gift has been brought into the world. We also grieve with Ron and Sherry and the death of a cousin and for David and Sylvia and the death of her brother unexpectedly. Comfort her and her family in this time of loss and sadness. Father, be with us tonight as we worship and speak to us. So many times we come in here expecting perhaps that, that you might speak to someone else or that a little of substance will transpire. But we pray tonight that you will meet us at the point of need and help us to draw closer to you as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our offertory hymn is hymn number 575, I Will Sing of My Redeemer. Now we've told a story about this for several weeks going. Brother Wayne shared a story about this Philip Bliss, who tried to rescue his wife from the burning train, and um, he was unsuccessful in doing that. They both perished in that. And this was his last hymn, and um, I've been kind of on that theme today because the first hymn we sang by E.M. Bartlett was also his last hymn. He sang it after he wrote that hymn after he had a stroke, and he wrote the words "Victory in Jesus." The music of the last two hymns have both been by James McGranahan, who uh, seemed to be completing a lot of texts that other people left uncompleted. So I'm going to ask you now to stand as we sing number 575, I Will Sing of My Redeemer. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. Cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, oh, sing of my Redeemer with his blood, he purchased me on the cross. He stilled my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save in his body. 
We come to you tonight. We come with humble hearts because you give us so much, Lord. We thank you for this beautiful day. Father, we continue to pray for rain that we so much need. Father, as we just listen to things that's going on in this church, of mission trips and mission trips and mission trips and church camps and for young people, we just, Father, we just have a staff that uh, we are just so proud of. You bless us every day in what they do. And the other members of our congregation and, and uh, that, that go and, and with them, our young people that step up to the plate, Father, we know that, too, that that can't be done without your will. And now, Lord, it's our time to, uh, to give back to you, and we hope that you will take this money that we give tonight and just stretch it, Lord, and just make it go to so many countries and so far. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much, Betsy. Wonderful, wonderful. What a musical family. I think I've heard everyone sing but Earl. <laughs> Is there a reason for that? Thank you so much. Beautiful song. Um, tonight I wanted to, to talk about reconciliation. It's so important. 
in our lives, in our families, in the church. And um, an issue that never goes away. 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16, apparently referred to in this passage is a letter to the Corinthians that we do not have. It's referred to as the angry letter, which Paul wrote. And uh, on the heels of that letter, upon receiving it, the Corinthians apparently came to their senses and apologized. And Paul writes 2 Corinthians to thank them for um, realizing the error of their ways and, and coming back to him. And he embraces them and talks about, in this whole process, reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 2 and going to the end of the chapter. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you were in our hearts to die together and to live together. I have great confidence in you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. With all our affliction, I am overjoyed. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Here's that verse. For even if I made you sorry with my letter... I did not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were, were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves guiltless in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your zeal for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his mind has been set at rest by you all. For if I have expressed to him some pride in you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his heart goes out all the more to you as he remembers the obedience of you all and the fear and trembling with which you received him. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Where are you on the revenge scale? On a scale of 1 to 10, would you say that 1, you are easy to forgive and ask for forgiveness? Or 10, would you say if someone wrongs you, you're out to get revenge? Where are you on that scale? And what do we need to do to bring ourselves down lower on that scale? More like Paul, more like Jesus who desires reconciliation above all else. Let's pray. Father, as we come tonight, I guess we, it's so easy to rationalize what we say and do and think ourselves to be more forgiving than we really are. But in our hearts, often we harbor ill will and resentment and rancor toward those perceived wrongs and slights which we have suffered. Father, teach us how to be forgiving even as you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jay Gould was a great Wall Street tycoon and the rector of his church where he attended was getting ready to retire. This rector had scrimped and saved and managed to accumulate about $30,000 throughout his lifetime for a retirement nest egg. 
And he came to Gould and asked him for some financial advice, and Gould replied, I'm going to tell you something with the understanding that this is for your ears only. Take all of your money, all 30000 and buy Missouri Pacific. The minister agreed to do so and further agreed not to tell a soul. So he followed Gould's advice and invested his entire $30,000 retirement nest egg in Missouri Pacific, and for several months the stock went up and up and up, and every day he became richer on paper. Then suddenly the bottom fell out, and it wiped out the minister's entire life savings. And in anguish and, and bitterness, he went to Gould and he said, I took your advice and I lost my whole life savings. And Gould replied, I'm so sorry for your inconvenience. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. For your $30,000 investment, I'll write you a check for $40,000 to make up for your trouble. The minister looked at the $40,000 check and said, I need to confess something before I take this check. I did not keep my word to you. But I told several members of the church about your investment advice. And Gould replied with a smile, I know, those are the ones I was after. <laughs> and that's the way most of us are about our enemies. We want to get back at them. If they hurt us, we want to hurt them in return. I've even had some people tell me, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back double. Not so with the Apostle Paul. His enemies at Corinth had hurt him, and his ministry had suffered. They lied. They undermined his work. And yet Paul's desire was not to get even, but to get right with them. He did not seek revenge. He sought reconciliation. In these opening verses of, of chapter 7, he reveals his heart. He claims his innocence against the charges that were brought against him. He declares that he is not against them. He is for them. And he says in verse 2, I wronged no one. I, I corrupted no one. I've taken advantage of no one. And instead of wanting to hurt the Corinthians, Paul wants to help them. He says, you're in our hearts in verse 3. You're in our hearts to die together and to live together. He loved them. He wanted to be with them through thick and thin. And that's why it broke his heart when they became estranged. And his desire was to be reconciled with them. And that's why he wrote this, this painful letter that he refers to. And that's why he sent Titus to visit them. And that's why he rejoices upon Titus' return that uh, he brings with him a message of reconciliation in verse 6. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. The basic message of verses 2 through 7 is that Paul has been reconciled to the Corinthians. They've been reconciled with him. And in the following verses, from verse 8 on, Paul talks about what happens as a result of reconciliation. First of all, he says reconciliation doesn't just happen. There's a reason for it. It's made possible because of the godly sorrow of the Corinthians. He says in verse 9, I rejoice... Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful, or not that you grieved, but that you were grieved into repenting because you felt godly grief. It was a, a godly grief that they had, and as a result of that, they repented. I ask children sometimes when they come to me to talk about making a profession of faith, I talk about repentance, and I, I say, do you understand what repentance means? And most of them say no. I say, has anybody ever said to you that they're sorry for doing something, and then they turn around and do the very same thing again? And they smile and say, yes, I know what you're talking about. So saying you're sorry and doing the same thing over again, I'm sorry, doing it again, I'm sorry, doing it again, what do you think? They're, they're not really sorry, are they? Because they keep doing the same thing over and over again. Repentance is more than just being sorry. Repentance is being so sorry that you sincerely desire and intend to turn away from that, that offending action and not keep repeating it over and over again. That's what Paul is talking about with godly sorrow here. The sorrow that is in accordance to the will of God produces a repentance of regret. Verse 10, 
leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces only death. Godly sorrow leads to action. It results in repentance and restoration. And and the perfect example of that, I think, is the story of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, he's in the pig pen. And in verse 17, he comes to himself. He realizes what he has done. And that's the change of attitude that takes place. But that's not all. He takes action. And he gets up in verse 19 and goes to his father. And all the way home, he's, he's rehearsing the forgiveness that he's going to ask for. His sorrow in the pig pen resulted in repentance that led to action. So two steps are necessary, a change in attitude and then action. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, is just only depression and despair, and it's demonstrated by the life of Judas. He felt remorse for what he did, but remember, that's all. He felt sorry, but instead of turning back and finding Jesus in reconciliation, the Bible says that he went out and hung himself and experienced eternal separation. He had a change of attitude, but without the right action. So that was worldly sorrow, and it does no earthly good. But godly sorrow that the Corinthians experienced resulted in reconciliation with the Apostle Paul. Reconciliation came as a result of of godly sorrow and repentance, a change of attitude and positive action. And what was the result? Verse 11, it goes several things. We see what earnestness... This godly grief has produced what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves guiltless in the matter. Several picturesque words Paul gives in verse 11. Sorrow producing earnestness. And with earnestness the Corinthians correct their problems and redirect their commitments. Sorrow leading to vindication. Because they have corrected their problems, they are vindicated before God, resulting in indignation. They are indignant toward the evil actions of Paul's enemies in Corinth. And sorrow producing fear or alarm. Fear toward whom? Toward God. Having recognized the seriousness of their opposition to the work of God, they were alarmed at the thought of having to face God. When you sin, when you Go against God. There ought to be godly fear that results when you realize that one day you'll have to come face to face and give account for your actions. And that was the fear that the Corinthians felt. But it also led in in an action and change of attitude toward Paul. Instead of despising him and criticizing him, they now longed to see him. They now defended him. Instead of going along with his critics... They now wanted to punish those critics that had come against Paul. The blessing of reconciliation is that two people or two groups who were estranged have been brought back together. Oh, how I wish wish in the Christian church that folks who are estranged could be reconciled. But reconciliation is difficult. Because it means one or both parties will have to humble themselves and admit the error and come back and ask for forgiveness. Years ago, twin sons were born to a merchant out in the Midwest, and they grew up inseparable from each other. They did everything together, and no one was surprised that neither of them married, but instead went to work in their father's mercantile store. And eventually, after the father's death, they ran the store together as partners. Early one morning, a customer came into the store and bought a dollar's worth of merchandise, and the brother who waited on him laid the dollar bill on the cash register and walked the customer to the door. A few minutes later, he realized he never put the bill in the register and returned to look for it and could not find it. He asked his twin brother if he had put it in, but the brother replied he hadn't seen it. That's funny, said the first brother. I distinctly remember laying it right here on the cash register, and no one else has been in here but you and I. Well, they dropped the matter for a while, but then about an hour later, the the brother raised the issue again. He said, about that dollar, are you sure you didn't do something with it? 
At this time, there was a little barb of accusation in the question. And the other brother reacted in anger. He said, no, don't you trust me? And for the first moment in their lives, a breach began to open in their relationship. And again and again, they tried to deal with the matter, but they could not. Each of them was sure the other brother was lying over a dollar bill. Eventually, things escalated. They dissolved the partnership. They put a brick wall right down the middle of the store, and they became competitors of one another. Neither would speak to the other. And for almost 20 years, they lived in that state of of polarization, that state of, of despise for the other brother. But then one day, 20 years later, a well-dressed stranger drove up in front of the store and came in. He asked one of the brothers how long he'd been in business. And when he found out he'd been at that site for more than 20 years, he said, then you're the one I need to talk to. He told him how he had come through town 20 years earlier. He was broke. He hadn't eaten in several days. And he was walking down the alley behind the store. He looked in the window and saw the dollar bill on the register. And when no one was looking, he took it. He said, that act has weighed on my conscience ever since. And I decided that I would never have any peace until I came back and made amends. The merchant to whom he was spoken, his speaking broke into tears and he said, I want you to come with me next door and tell my brother that story. He did. And the two brothers realized that they had wasted 20 years in poisoned hostility and blame. And they embraced each other with tears and were finally reunited. And like Paul and the Corinthians, they experienced reconciliation. And I think that's the way it's going to happen for many of us one day. When reconciliation finally does come, we'll feel so foolish and so petty for having lost so many years of friendship or so many years a family over something that probably wasn't all that important to start with. I distinctly remember visiting a a church member in the hospital several years ago, and he had quit coming to church. And I said, tell me about it. And he said, I really don't want to go into it. But looking back on it now, he said, I realize how silly and how petty it was. And that's the way it's going to be. We'll realize in retrospect what we sacrificed over something so unimportant in the long run. In verses 13 through 16, we see Paul's response to the reconciliation. He says in verse 16, I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. When reconciliation occurs, there is rejoicing. Some people respond to the one reaching out in reconciliation by making more demands, by saying, I was right all along, and becomes arrogant. Sometimes people deny that a breach ever occurred. I'm sorry, what are you talking about? There's nothing between us. But Paul responds neither by making more demands, nor arrogance, nor denial, He just responds with rejoicing. He's thankful for the restored relationship that he has with the Corinthians. I think this passage of Scripture is is not only a teaching that Paul gives us, but it's also maybe a lesson out of his diary from his personal experience, a testimony of what happened in his own life. And as a result... It has become so relevant for, for, for everybody of every age because it's a, it's a recurring problem. It's impossible to relate, to relate to other people in the work of the church, to live together and to work together without sometimes hurting each other somewhere along the road. And the question is not, will you be hurt 
by someone along the road. The question is, how will you respond when that hurt occurs? It's not, will you be estranged from other Christians sometime in your Christian life? The question is, what will you be willing to do in order to bring about reconciliation? So I believe this evening's message can be summarized in a few statements. First of all, everybody, everybody has a responsibility in taking initiative and bringing about reconciliation. But you say, I'm right and he's wrong. He's the one that hurt me. Well, Jesus says very plainly in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, Matthew 5, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something to give you, there leave your gift at the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother and then come back and make your offering. He doesn't say if you have done something to wrong your brother. He says if, if, if your brother has done something to wrong you, your gift isn't acceptable to God until you first go and make the effort to be reconciled. So you can't say that I'm right and he's wrong. When conflict occurs, there is blame enough to go around. And your level of spiritual maturity determines whether you can acknowledge your portion of the responsibility and deal with it. Secondly, reconciliation requires sorrow and repentance. And that means that you not only desire reconciliation, but you are willing to, to take some kind of action which will lead to reconciliation. Take some step. And thirdly, when reconciliation does occur, you respond not with arrogance or denial or making more demands, but with gratitude and rejoicing. That's what the father did when the prodigal son came home. He didn't say, I knew one day you'd come to your senses. I hoped one day you would grow up and realize the error of your ways. He simply threw his arms around his beloved son and welcomed him home. The story is told, and I believe it's true, that when Leonardo da Vinci was painting The Last Supper, he was involved in a bitter argument with a fellow artist. And he was so enraged and so prideful of his own talent that he decided to paint the face of his enemy on the face of Judas. Did you hear me? Leonardo da Vinci painted the face of his enemy on the face of Judas. In that way, the hated painter's face would be forever immortalized in the face of the disciple who betrayed Jesus. When he finished painting Judas, everyone could easily see the face of the painter with whom da Vinci quarreled. And then da Vinci continued his painting. But guess what happened? When he got to painting the face of Christ, he got stuck. Something was holding him back. And he decided finally that his hatred toward his fellow painter was the problem. So he worked through his hatred and he repainted the face of Judas with some anonymous face. And only then was he able to continue his work and paint the face of Jesus and complete his masterpiece. And the truth of that story is plain to see. Because if you see in the face of others something you hate, then it will also be difficult for you to see the face of Jesus. But if you are reconciled to one another, then the face of Jesus will be made plain. You know, we pray, sometimes without thinking, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I had a beloved professor at seminary who used to say that if God's measure of forgiveness is dictated by our willingness to forgive one another, 
then he may not be very busy. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Shall we pray? God, I'm frightened by that statement. Realizing that your forgiveness toward me is measured in some respect by how willing I am to forgive others. I thank you, first of all, that Jesus died for me when I was still a sinner and deserved nothing. But since becoming a Christian, the standards have been raised. And you desire Christians to live differently from the rest of the world. Christians to live in love. And Christians to be reconciled with one another when the world is satisfied with bitterness. When the world is satisfied with estrangement and hatred and animosity. But you call us to come out of the world and live differently. But we can't do it alone. So bring to mind and heart those with whom we hold a grudge. And give us the strength to be reconciled before offering an, a gift on the altar to you. Realizing that it's not acceptable until some effort at reconciliation is made. Of course, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our invitational hymn this evening is number 300, Without Him. I'll be at the front to receive you. If you have a decision to make public, if there is um, something you need to share, if you want to join this church, if you need to rededicate your life, whatever, you come and we'll receive you. Hymn number 300, let's stand together and sing. to you this one making a decision public this evening. Jacob Sowell, buddy, come and stand with me. Jacob comes tonight to stand before you to say that he invited Jesus into his heart during Vacation Bible School, and he is here to give public testimony to that profession and to, and to ask if he can join the church and be baptized as, as an expression of that.
So if you join with me in rejoicing with Jacob and welcoming him into our church family upon his profession of faith as a candidate for baptism, would you let it be known by saying amen? Amen. Jacob, are you excited? He's he's controlling his emotions very well, isn't he? (laughs) Uh, Craig and Keetra. Keetra, yeah, y'all come and stand with him. And you come by and speak to Jacob. Are you going to children's camp tomorrow? You're going to children's camp too. Jacob doesn't miss an event here at church. And uh, we're so excited that his family has, has raised him uh, in the church. And he has come to that point in his life where he is ready to give his life to Jesus. And he did that. In-